0: This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is brought to you by Bethlehem College, where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. Life trajectories are set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25. At Bethlehem College, students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but a 200-person college. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College, education in serious joy. To apply or learn more, visit bcsmn.edu slash tgc. That's bcsmn.edu slash TGC.
1: On behalf of the Gospel Coalition, we want to say thank you for allowing us to join you this year on your morning jog, commute to work, or wherever else you listen to the Gospel Coalition podcast. In 2020, we plan to launch several new podcasts to help listeners like you apply the gospel to all of life. To help us keep providing free gospel-centered resources like this, would you consider making a one-time or monthly gift to the Gospel Coalition? Every gift allows us to bring more light and hope to those searching for answers online. Make a gift today at tgc.org donate. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen.
2: Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast. My name is Matt Smethurst, and I serve as managing editor for TGC. And today, the host of the Gospel Coalition podcast that you're used to, Colin Hansen, is the guest. And I have the privilege of chatting with Colin about an annual article that he writes, and he has just published the 2019 version of it. It is his Top Theology Stories. Colin, thank you for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt, on my own podcast. I appreciate that.
2: (laughs) Colin, it's uh, been a joy to work with you for so many years at TGC and to think about these top theology stories at the end of every year. And this year, uh, as is usually the case, was filled with just opportunities to reflect on Kind of the good, the bad and the ugly as it relates to Christianity in the world, but particularly uh, in, in the West. Uh, how long, first of all, have you been coming up with these top theology stories every year?
1: If it weren't linked from the article itself, Matt, I probably wouldn't remember. So the article tells me <laughs> that I started in 2008, back when I was writing the Theology in the News column for Christianity Today online, and then I carried that over when I began as the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition in 2010, and it's been an annual tradition ever since Ever since then, for better and
2: worse. All right. Yeah, so I think that's this is the 12th installment. And how do you Uh, choose what goes on this list
1: that is not an easy thing to answer in part because there's no magic formula for this i i have to give a a really strong caveat every year at the very beginning i have to say this is an admittedly foolhardy attempt there's a reason nobody else does this everybody does their best books of the year (laughs) list but nobody uh you know Deigns to come up with their top theology stories of the year. Even 12 years in, it is a field that I own all to myself, and that's probably simply because of my foolishness. I always have to give a caveat that it's written from the vantage point of an American who subscribes to the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement, so I have a particular vantage point. I think there has to be some truth in advertising. To that, And so I don't have proximity to every single issue out there, and I'm going to judge issues differently, depending on my own theological beliefs, which I think is inevitable for everybody. But again, I just want to be clear about that for folks. So uh, when you're trained in journalism school, one of the exercises you work through is news judgment. And you talk about things like, how big is it? How new is it? How many people does it affect? Things like that it's not a formula there's a lot of debate around that different people are going to come up with different things it's a it's a feel it's an intuition in some ways although i will say i do have a benefit at the gospel coalition <laughs> that benefit is that um i get to look at statistics i get to look at what you people, the the listeners, I get to see what you care about the most. Uh, not maybe what we say we want to talk about the most, but what we actually think about the most. And those statistics are not necessarily foolproof; they can be they can be misleading as well. But I run through a number of things. Uh, I look through everything we've published. I look through all the statistics. I begin to compile it, and then from there, it's a little bit of sort of feel my way around, and I'll I'll seek some input from some other people as well, Uh, though this year I didn't quite seek as much input, in part because I don't want to have to make people feel responsible for some of my mistakes or some of my particular judgments. Uh, But I I try to be responsible with that, but, you know, somebody else might end up with a different conclusion than I reached.
2: Yeah, that's a helpful way to frame it for, for folks listening, Colin. In your introduction to the piece, you 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 set the scene by talking about the effectiveness of lying. What are you getting at there?
1: Every year, Matt, I try to set the scene, as you said, for understanding some sort of trend from within the last year, something that I'm intuiting about the nature of our discourse, of of different things that emerged within the last year. And one of the things that I've picked up on is not just that there are a lot of people out there who lie i guess in service of truth like they lie saying that they're doing this for Jesus's sake it's a little confusing to me but i guess that's not entirely new but here's what i'm seeing this year it's it's effective it's working it's destroying people's reputations it's harming institutions it's confusing international readers who don't understand the different dynamics of what they're reading on social media or on websites and so i'm wondering how do we get to this place of a sort of of an epistemological crisis a crisis of truth and i know we've talked about that in the broader culture and maybe we just lagged within the church that people have picked up on The the sort of politics of lying that if you simply lie often enough, then it's kind of hard for people to discern the difference there. And if you just continue and you keep up that volume, eventually people begin to believe that, um, that that something is true or that it just doesn't matter or. You know, maybe you were right that once, and so therefore it justifies all of the other lying that's been done. But um, I, I do wonder about that, of, of how theology is wielded in ungodly ways for supposedly godly ends. Mm-mm. It's not quite something I understand, but as you'll see in this list from this last year, there's a lot in here where really it's less about I don't know, how does anybody judge the actual effect of a theology news story? But you'll see that so much of the debate about interpretation and sometimes also deliberate misinformation is itself a major component to why I've judged that news story to be newsworthy for this list.
2: Okay, so without further ado, let's go ahead and, and walk through the list. Uh, we will we will walk through it, um, starting with number 10, going going toward number one. And um I'd love for you to just give a few sentences on at least most of these. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to hit every one, but a few sentences about the significance of the event or the story and why you chose to include it in this list in the way you did. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Number 10, prosperity preacher takes job in Trump administration.
1: So is it a theology story? Well, maybe maybe not the story is in the debate around it so paula white joined the trump administration she effectively had really been as such a strong defender of the president she had been um, i mean i don't know how much of a practical difference it makes for her to be in that position but the thing that's so interesting to me about this is the way that so many prominent southern baptist pastors and other sort of denominational leaders whose theology would strongly reject prosperity preaching, such as that uh, from Paula White, nevertheless came to her defense. And I think the way I reflect on that is to see that we all do this to one degree or another, but I think we're especially prone to doing that now where our theology is really secondary. I often hear Matt pastors tell me that if they get their theology wrong, a lot of people in their church wouldn't notice But if they said the wrong thing politically, they'd get fired. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, the theology story itself is that theology has been subsumed to our political alliances. That's why I put this piece at number 10.
2: And then number nine, are we supposed to boycott Chick-fil-A now?
1: Yeah, this was a thing that came out fairly recently. So this is sort of an end of the year thing that jumped onto the list. Now you can look at from from this a couple different perspectives. One of them is from simply that you and I talked about this before, Matt, this sort of emerging theological, theological consensus of progressive activists as it relates to our sexuality. Make no mistake. They are not making scientific observations. They are making Mm -hmm. philosophical and theological observations about the nature of humanity, about the nature of gender, about the nature of sexuality. So we have competing theologies at work between a lot of the people who have been critical of Chick-fil-A and places like the Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes that they had previously supported. But then, of course, Matt, there's also a faith and work component here, which is, What is the obligation of a Christian company to begin with? Is there such a thing as the Christian chicken? As people talk about there, why do people have this sort of expectation of Chick-fil-A? Maybe it's simply because it's their own fault. They made us feel that way in a sort of marketing um, effort. Or it could be that perhaps we're expecting things of, let's be clear, a fast food purveyor of chicken sandwiches that really we should only be expecting of churches.
2: Yeah, and Colin, isn't isn't a lot of the story here not even so I mean there there is some disclarity on on whether or to what degree Chick-fil-A caved to the pressure here, exactly what what they were up to. Yeah. But I, a lot of the story is in what pre what is the precursor here? Like what is this forecasting for the future of companies who are wanting to hold the line um, in in a in a biblically faithful manner is that is that even tenable in our post-christian age
1: right that's that's Joe Carter's observations writing for us that we can debate about whether or not they should have done this or why they did this or what's really happening but what we can't confuse is that whether you're a company or a church or an individual Christian, it's simply difficult to be able to hold to a biblical theology of sexuality, I and mean, this is a trend. I mean, I, I think Matt, you could go back to my earliest theology stories of the year lists, and you could see this trend emerging consistently throughout that time. So it, it's not a new thing, but it's a perennial challenge that what the what Christians believe theologically about the body is not what our larger culture believes. Which is one reason why, theologically speaking, so many people are going back to study the Roman, um, the Roman period, the early church, and discovering, lo and behold, that was precisely the thing that put Christians on a crash course of conflict against the Roman Empire. And at the same time, it also was something that was appealing to people, especially those people who suffered um, sexually uh, under the repression of uh, the Roman Empire's Moors of that day. So all kinds of different angles to that story.
2: Yeah, number eight, uh, you write, Hong Kong fights for freedom.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think Matt, you'd probably be the expert to turn to on this topic there. But uh, we've seen a number of protests, especially toward the end of this year in Hong Kong, increasingly violent uh, conflicts between a number of, of younger protesters um, advocating in a gener- generic way, in a general way for freedom. And also there are some specific policies um, at play there as well. But the theological angle that comes in here is the debate that we talked about um, in a piece called Hope for Hong Kong that's linked here in this article about what is the obligation of churches here? Should churches be engaged? Should they be right there on the front lines? Should they be leading the charge or should they be trying to stay above the fray? This is not a unique challenge for the, the churches of Hong Kong to think through. It's not a unique challenge for Christians throughout time, but I think that's why it registered so high on my list, is this is a perennial challenge. What does what does the Bible obligate us to do when it comes to these sort of broader social, cultural, political debates? Uh, the Christians of, of goodwill and trust in God's Word— have disagreed on that topic over time and over place.
2: Yeah, and obviously that's a that's an unfolding story. It seems like every week or two we see we see more uh, headlines, not only from Hong Kong but also from what's going on uh, uh, with the repression of Muslims in Western China and the Xinjiang province. And so, um, any Christian who cares about the global church ought to be at least somewhat dialed into what um, many of our brothers and sisters in the faith. Are are facing in Hong Kong as well as in parts of China, Colin. For number seven, uh, you you wrote the Notre Dame Cathedral fire unites believers and unbelievers, Catholics and Protestants. What what are you getting at there?
1: Yeah, this is a theology story list, so it's not just a religion story list. I would imagine this piece will be this event will figure prominently. In many of the year-end lists of of news stories you, you see around the world, but the theological angle here is why were Protestants feeling this way? Why were Americans feeling this way? Why were unbelievers feeling this way? Why why were they mourning the loss of this place? And I think it speaks to the persistent longing of for transcendence, for solidity. Uh, Even among unbelievers, but I think at the same time, it also speaks to the way Protestants have an implicit theology of sacred spaces. And it's one of those things, Matt, where you might have somebody say, I don't care where we worship, Until you're engaged in a capital campaign, and until there's debate, and all of a sudden people have a lot of really strongly held, even theological assumptions about what a church should feel like, about where a church should be located, and that speaks to an often unarticulated theology of place and a theology of aesthetics that even Protestants bear whether or not they'll
2: admit it. Right. And, and even though it's true in one sense that the church is the people, the people need a place. And if they never gather, uh, then they're not a church. Colin, on number, number six, I'm sure that the United Methodists have showed up more than once before on your year-end stories. And here they show up in what I think is kind of a, a, a surprising story this year when they formally upheld uh, biblical sexuality. What do, what do you um, see as the significance there?
1: Yeah, somebody who grew up, United Methodist, I'm often tracking these trends, but at the same time, United Methodists are still the second largest Protestant denomination in the United States behind the Southern Baptists. So what happens within the UMC has significant ramifications, even as a mainline denomination that in a variety of ways does not really align with the Gospel Coalition. But insofar as we do share with our evangelical brothers and sisters in the United Methodist Church this view of, of biblical sexuality, it's a significant story for us. But the particular angle that I'm looking at here. Uh, theologically speaking, is the emergence of the majority world. That's another one of those trends that's not new and it's not going to stop probably, Matt, for as long as you and I are working in this or some other position. Uh, The real trendsetters here have been the majority world leaders within the UMC. They're the ones who have the numbers, and they're going to continue to have the numbers to be able to vote on these policies. And so you have these massive megachurches in the United States, including some that are pretty liberal and certainly revisionist when it comes to biblical sexuality, but ultimately they're not the ones who wield the power because they can't change the votes. And I did, though, specifically say formally upheld. Because it remains to be seen, and perhaps it'll be left um, left to 2020 to sort out, what are these more liberal or left-leaning revisionist churches going to do? Because we still see the policy on the books, but that hasn't stopped them year after year after year from trying to change it. So does this mean they leave? Does this mean they splinter in a number of different directions? Does this mean they leave, but they get to take their church buildings and they get to take entire seminaries, entire other ministries? There's a lot that still has to play out here. But uh, theologically, it's so interesting to see that it's not like people can just sit in the United States anymore and call the shots. Um, The global church has a strong voice.
2: You mentioned the United Methodists are the second largest Protestant denomination. The first is highlighted in number five. You write sex abuse in SBC sparks broader debate over gender roles.
1: Yeah, I don't know, Matt, how exactly those two things are connected, but they are somehow. That 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 much is obvious. So you have the sort of um reporting turn that started about 20 years ago with the Boston Globe and the Roman Catholic Church, the sort of spotlight of reporters looking at sexual abuse within the institutions of American life, and that's one thing I do want to make clear. We know a lot about what's happening in the church, but this reckoning is coming to so many different institutions of American life. I, I saw fairly recently that it's now coming to places like Uber and Lyft, the, the sexual assault uh, crisis within those places as well. So this year, sort of the reporting focus looked at the SBC and somehow connected to that in some way. It sparked a bigger conversation about the the sort of place of women within the SBC, which as a denomination is explicitly committed to complementarianism, which at the very minimum means that at least sort of a lead or pastor or elders or those sort of leaders of a church would be men. And yet there's a lot of still debate about theologically speaking and practically speaking how that works out. And what are sort of the obligations of the church in light of the boundaries between a healthy complementarianism on the one hand and a sort of unhealthy misogyny? And when does one give way to the other and how can you differentiate between them? And and can we speak up with one voice about the evils of abuse without at the same time imagining that our complementarianism is responsible for it? Or some might say that it is responsible for it. So So many different angles here theologically, it's kind of surprising that it was only number five on my list, which makes you wonder what's higher on there, because this at least consumed a whole lot of uh, mind space on Twitter (laughs) over the summer. But it is also another example where I think a lot of that debate was more on social media than it was necessarily popular in other places. And that's probably one thing that differentiates that story from uh, the uh, the top four on my list.
2: Yeah, of course, we could devote an entire episode to every single one of these. Especially these, uh, these last five are just are just massive stories. In many of them, such as the the sex abuse in the SBC that, that was uncovered by the Houston Chronicle and has really been a, a major news story the whole year. Just the, the the horror of that evil is something that does complicate and and just make difficult having the complementarian discussion right now. Um Colin, number four, you, you write, can the president visit your church?
1: <laughs> so this is a little bit of an echo to number 10, uh, the piece about Paula White. So it's the way that politics so shape our theology. Now, biblically speaking, what we're told to do for our leaders is pretty clear. Uh, And I think when President Trump visited McLean Bible Church with almost no notice and showed up on the platform with David Platt, uh, David Platt did what the Bible would ask him to do, would command him to do. He prayed for him. But again, this was not a situation that he could quote unquote win in the court of popular opinion, especially on social media, where a number of people are going to say he didn't do enough to honor the president and a number of other people are going to say that he had no business even allowing the president to enter the building and certainly not honoring him even through a prayer there. And so our theology debates are are really subsumed in so many ways to this never ending culture war. And it makes you wonder, Matt, if churches are going to be allowed or if churches are going to find a way to insist on letting the priority of the gospel, the priority of our biblical convictions to rise above the pervasive demonization of our cultural enemies and our political opponents. And that's not to minimize the legitimate political critiques that people have. We don't want to be quietist about this. But at the same time, it does make you wonder what happens when our biblical theology is really beside the point compared to our first political principles. That's a scary place for the church to be. And, and that
2: is a, a theme that that clearly runs through uh, many of these and will only ramp up as we, as we approach the 2020 election. Number three, and this is a, a, a sobering one that, that I, I say with a heavy heart, Joshua Harris deconstructs his faith.
1: A lot of uh, theological or pseudo-theological terms, Matt, that emerged within this last year around the high-profile uh, deconstruction uh, for Joshua Harris. So, a term like deconstruction itself, this sense in which you go back and you you pick off piece by piece these elements of your worldview, of your faith, of your upbringing, of your perspective on things. To try to eliminate and to separate yourself from this sort of toxicity, which would be how unbelievers um, would often see that. Or at least, if not all of your Christian faith, then at least your evangelical faith there. So other terms, deconversion or purity culture, that's a big one that was debated quite a bit this year. I, um, I don't really know how to describe it as a theological story, but... Rachel Held Evans died this year as well, unexpectedly, at only 37 years old. And uh, as Joshua Harris sort of joined these ex-evangelical ranks, he joined that kind of movement that Rachel, for so many years, was really a prominent leader in. And it makes you wonder, with the movement dynamics of our theological tribes, where do things go? From here with these different groups, so what does that kind of progressive ex-evangelical world look like without without Rachel? There's still many people who share those theological beliefs and they'll and they'll still speak with confidence about those things but she was a pretty singularly influential figure in that trend likewise Josh mm-hmm. was such a significant leader when it came to uh, things like what's now been dubbed this purity culture. And within movements like Sovereign Grace that have really fragmented, where he was a major leader for for so many years. Uh, but I but I would say just in summary, Matt, on this, I mean, this is not sort of idle speculation for us. I'm trying to use this list as a way of of thinking about what God's doing in our age and and in our time. And what I'm wondering for for our listeners here is just to think: Does your theology help wavering believers to doubt? toward God. And, I, and I'm not saying that doubt is itself a virtue. I think sometimes people can go too far with that. But I do want to say that if your church stigmatizes doubt and questions, then I think you have to be prepared for more people like Josh who who emerge thinking that theology is merely a set of principles that you must adopt as opposed to a life that's that, that God calls us into, a dynamic life that God calls us into that includes, especially in this secular age, some measure of questioning about the truth of these things, but to emerge stronger through that. So that's the theology element of that story in particular as we look toward these these last couple stories.
2: Yeah, and may we, may we be people who have conviction and backbone and yet, as Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Number two, when is a hug more than a hug? <laughs>
1: You know, when I first saw this uh, story break this year, Matt, it just seemed like a pretty simple good news story. The the brother of the murdered Botham Jean asked the judge to allow him to hug the convicted killer in an act of forgiveness, and that uh, that murderer had had received that forgiveness gratefully. In fact, went further than that. The judge actually handed that woman her Bible and encouraged her to mm-hmm. to read that. But I think the challenge here, Matt, is you got a couple different things going on. And one of them is a theme that we've been talking about here in general, where a lot of other issues, cultural, political, are more important to us than theological. And so all of a sudden, this became not an issue of the gospel of grace and of forgiveness, but it became an issue of sort of just a political and social and racial posturing about about grievance culture and you know privilege and things like that. So that was a major component to this. But I think there was also another angle where our theology of forgiveness has been so widely misunderstood. We've really lost touch with what the Bible teaches about forgiveness and that we make it seem like forgiveness is just releasing everybody from the consequences of their actions. But the fact is that forgiveness can go hand in hand and in fact must go hand in hand with repentance and also is accompanied by God's heart for justice to be done. So these things don't have to be mutually exclusive, but in a therapeutic notion of forgiveness, they do become competitors with each other, and thus the confusion, I think, that ensued in this particular case.
2: All right, and number one, Colin, Kanye walks the aisle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was with you, Matt, the The first time I'd heard a rumor about this, and you can recall I saw somebody post on the Gospel Coalition's Facebook page that Kanye had enrolled at the Master's Seminary. And I remember walking back, it was with all of our editors, and I joked, can you guys believe this? I just saw the most ridiculous thing. And do you remember how everybody reacted to it, Matt?
2: Do we think it was a Babylon Bee article? <laughs>
1: no, no. Everybody was like, oh yeah, I've heard the same thing. Oh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, sounds, sounds, sounds true to me. Now, it didn't really turn out to be true. But it did yeah, turn. I had, out...
2: Yeah, I had heard. I had heard that same rumor.
1: <laughs> so it turned out instead that yes, he had indeed gone through this uh, pretty high-profile, dramatic conversion that sort of announced itself with his uh, with the re- release of his major album this year. But um, it's this is the theology angle here. Of course, it's a huge story and. A cause for much celebration and um and thanksgiving to god uh for his uh for just the power to save but i think what makes it so interesting theologically is that it doesn't take us long before we start to really pick this whole thing apart instead of just celebrating that somebody has come from death to life from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light instead we want to know why is he hanging out with joel osteen is he going to be mm-hmm. woke enough? Does he believe in limited atonement? <laughs> and those are all important things. I mean, I, I don't want him hanging out with Joel Osteen. That's not going to be a positive example for him. I, I agonize for him who's trying to to wrestle through all of these different dynamics of justice and, and, and race and everything like that. I think studying limited atonement is an important thing, but mostly it made me thank God that he spared me from working out my theology in the world's brightest spotlight.
2: Yeah, and there's that's no denying that Kanye has made a career on being a provocateur and a loose cannon, and he, he has said some irresponsible things. There's no doubt about it. But uh, if, if God has indeed changed his heart and the Holy Spirit is indwelling him, then, then I would hope that we could all join the angels in celebrating his new life, but also praying that God would preserve him like you said, on such a prominent stage, where I certainly am happy that I didn't have to live out, especially in my early years, um, in, in the in the limelight. Well, Colin, thank you for giving us a quick uh, survey of this, and I would I would encourage readers to check out the article that we've just published at TGC. It is titled uh, "My Top Ten Theology Stories of 2019" by Colin Hansen. So thanks, Colin, for sitting on the other side of the, the table today and, and uh, talking with me. Thank you for putting so much thought into this list and to into all the work that you do for us here at TGC. Uh, I know you want to say one more thing before we wrap up on this last podcast of the year.
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's just really fun to be able to talk through this with you and a privilege to be able to work with you every day uh, very closely on on all of this at at the Gospel Coalition. Well, it seems kind of strange just sitting here in my office at uh, Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, just sort of staring off into nothing. But I feel like I have a, a special connection with the folks who listen to the Gospel Coalition podcast and have listened to it for many years as I've been privileged to be the host and where I've had the privilege of, of doing so many interviews. It's just really been an honor, and I'm, I'm grateful to all those people who have come up to me and and thanked me for that, for a specific interview that we did or for a talk that we ran or for a conversation that we moderated. This is really one of the most enjoyable parts of my job as the editorial director. And so I'm signing off for this year of, of 2019, From the Gospel Coalition podcast, but I'm also signing off from the Gospel Coalition podcast permanently. We've got a number of changes coming to the Gospel Coalition with our podcasts in the upcoming year. Changes that I think you're going to be very excited for. If you're a fan of what we've been doing with our podcast at TGC, this is all good news for you. The good news is that we're just going to be doing a lot more with our new network of podcasts. So you can expect an announcement of that very, very, very soon including uh, one thing I want you to be looking out for in particular is that these interviews that I've been doing uh, for all these years, we're going to put them on their own podcast going forward, which is really exciting. So if that's uh, one of the things that you look forward to on the Gospel Coalition podcast, there's a lot more of that to come. So instead of uh, a monthly pattern of those interviews, we're actually aiming now for a weekly pattern. So you're going to get a lot more of that, so if you like hearing from me and, and more importantly, if you like hearing from what god 's doing in a lot of the people uh, who are in the news and who are writing books and are making a difference for the kingdom of God out there in the world, then I would just um, encourage you to to subscribe to that podcast as we launch that in 2020. But one last word before uh, before i before I hang up on the Gospel coalition podcast, I want to thank uh, uh, my my friend and colleague Betsy Childs Howard for her incredible work all these years. She's still going to be working on on various aspects of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Certainly, she's going to be helping me uh, with this other new podcast. She's got some other... Uh, changes going on in her life uh, that will necessitate some further changes. But mainly I just just wanted to say thank you to her publicly wanted to acknowledge her for her excellent work on on helping with the content and with the scheduling and with all of the -the behind-the-scenes production editing uh, my mistakes on this podcast. She's done amazing remarkable work and she's just been an absolute joy to work with all those years. So for all of you out there who've been listening uh, she deserves much of, of your appreciation as well for that. So it's it's just been it's been a privilege on the Gospel Coalition Podcast. I hope you'll keep listening as we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition Podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org donate.